what technology has done, it hasn't civilized us. We've primitivized it. We've assimilated technology into our tribal worldview. So now you see the same thing happening again, this tribal manichaeanism. You know, you've got all this, all these subdivisions, but it's all tribal. It's all, we're good, our enemies are evil. That's it, it's that simple. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, I'm excited to have with me Gurinder Bogle. We met on Twitter. And for those who aren't familiar with Gurinder's work, he has some epic Twitter mega threads that so lucidly explain the cognitive distortions and logical fallacies that we're vulnerable to as human beings and some ways that these affect our behavior on the internet and in all areas of our life. I've been wanting to talk to Gurinder for months now since I first um, came across his work uh, back when nobody knew who I was. And I I reached out through Colin Wright uh, from episode four, just begging for an introduction. So we're finally getting around to meeting. Today's date is July 22nd, and I don't don't know when this episode will air, uh, but we might actually discuss some current events. So Gurwinder has a background in tech and has taken an interest in how the internet affects psychology. And now he spends most of his time uh, writing about these issues. Gurwinder, welcome. It's so good to have you. Thank you, Stephanie. Good to be here. So before we started recording, you were starting to share how you got into this work. Can we pick up there? Yeah, sure. So um I was a young idealist and uh, I sort of got swept up in this sort of whole thing about the internet sort of uh, eliminating human ignorance and sort of, you know, filling the world with knowledge. So that was something that I chose to go into. I decided to work in search engines and I hoped that basically I would be able to bring knowledge to people uh, through this, you know, and to sort of uh, fix human beings, as it were. I thought that the main problem with human beings was ignorance. So I went into tech and started working um, on sort of information technology and sort of search engines and improving uh, knowledge, as it were. That was my goal. But I very quickly realized that uh, the main problem with human beings wasn't that they lacked knowledge. It wasn't that they weren't getting the right information because search engines were giving them pretty good information. But what they were choosing to do with the information was the problem. So it wasn't really about algorithms. You know, you might hear people say today that the reason that we're in uh, this whole mess of fake news and polarization is that, uh, you know, it's algorithms are making us do this. It's not really. What I realized when I went into tech was that the main problem is actually human psychology. And algorithms are just a reflection of human desires. They just do what humans want them to do. And so it's the desires, the human desires that are the problem. Humans want bad information. 
It's not that they don't have good information. It's that they choose bad information over good information. And so upon this realization, I realized that there was a limit to how well tech could fix human beings. It wouldn't be able to eliminate human ignorance as I'd originally believed. What was needed was a revolution in consciousness, a revolution in psychology, uh, rather than one in tech, because the revolution in tech would follow the revolution in psychology. So at that point, I became more interested in fixing the bugs in the brain rather than fixing the bugs you know, in computers. And so that was the moment I began to transition away from tech and I became more interested in psychology. But obviously, I don't have an academic background in psychology. So it was quite difficult for me to make the leap from tech to psychology. So I basically uh, did a little bit of freelance writing and uh, I also went to Luton to study uh, Islamic extremists because I had the opportunity to do so. And through that work, I sort of started to get a bit of recognition. And uh, that was the beginning of this sort of path that I've been on since then, where I've been sort of studying the ways that um, people become delusional. <laughs> that's basically the thing that I've been studying. So yeah, that's basically been my journey so far. Uh, since then, I've, I've sort of developed a following online uh, due to my mega threads. But most of the information uh, I, I learned uh, either in Luton or sort of in my research after that. So you came to psychology by a different path than many other people come to psychology, you know, yeah. people such as myself who approach it as therapists. You came from logic and problem solving, yeah. trying to help improve humanity's fate through technology. And you discovered that psychology was the next step. It was a, it presented many hurdles that you would have to take the time to address and understand if you were to follow through with your mission. So I love that you're bringing that very logic and reason-based approach to the field of psychology. I mean, I think that psychology is very fundamental to understanding pretty much everything because it's the study of the thing that studies. It's the study of the brain, you know. Um, so in a way, it's, it's even more fundamental than math because it's the, it's the study of the thing that's doing the studying. All problems ultimately in, that face our species are ultimately the work of the brain. If they're not the work of the brain, then, then the brain has the solutions to those problems. So everything really depends on understanding the brain. And I mean, I, I, although I don't have like a proper academic background in psychology, I did study it at A-level, which is the sort of um, two years just before university. And that was what initially piqued my interest in psychology. But I was very wary early on that there's a lot of nonsense in the field of psychology as well. Um, you know, there's, I learned sort of when I was 16 years old about Freud and Jung. And although they're, you know, they've they made an important contribution to the history of psychology, um, a lot of their stuff is not scientific. Uh, there's a lot of unscientific theories in psychology. So I was very careful about avoiding that early on. And I did, you know, like, like you said, that I took this scientific approach, this sort of logic, logic based approach to psychology, because I felt that understanding the brain is a, is something that is very difficult because we're brains trying to understand brains. And so there's a lot of errors that can be made when we're trying to do that. So I was very careful about the path that I took. I, I didn't want to just assume certain theories were truths, such, such as um, Freud's psychoanalysis and 
you know, Jung's theories. And so I, I tended to sort of look at the things that, I tended to look at the brain as a computer in a way. It is quite a cliched model, but it helped me to have a more of a reason-based approach rather than this one, which is sort of, you know, about just having these wild theories, you know, which I find to be quite a, an obstacle to understanding the brain. I wrote an article earlier this week about a topic we might get into today, uh, sparked by my being suspended from Twitter uh, for alleged hate speech. Yeah. And I wrote about the idea of psychological germ theory, um, you know, some concepts that relate to, for example, the work of, I don't quite know how to pronounce his name, Gad Saad, God Saad. Oh, yeah, God Saad. Um, yeah. But yeah, God Saad, yeah. the parasitic yeah. mind. But some of these ideas I'd, I'd had prior to encountering his work. And in that article, I talked about this very thing that you just mentioned, the brain trying to understand itself, right? When you're infected with a physical parasite, bacteria, or virus, and you know it, then you know that you can uh, figure out what to do. You can take medical advice for helping your body fight off the parasite. But what if you're infected with a psychological parasite? Psychological parasites depend on the organism, uh, the host, not knowing they're infected and taking over their behavior. So it is it is difficult for the mind to see itself and recognize when ideas that seem like they're your own ideas are actually causing uh, disease rather than health. Mm, and I want your thoughts on this. I, I see a lot of obsession with psychology amongst some of the least psychologically healthy people who are the loudest voices on the internet, right? And as a mental health clinician who's trained to diagnose and treat mental health conditions, it really gets under my skin to see people using diagnosis so incorrectly. What do you think about this kind of obsession with psychology at the same time as there's such a profound psychological illiteracy in the ways that are actually practical, like what you're talking about? And what makes us want, as you were saying earlier, bad information? Okay, so this is uh, quite an interesting question. So um, the the point that you're making about the uh, the parasitic mind and Gad Saad, that idea was, I think, first proposed by Richard Dawkins uh, with his meme theory. And it was the idea that ideas are like viruses and they spread from mind to mind and they change the host's behavior in the same way that certain parasites do. Um, such as Toxoplasma gondii, which is a, a, a parasite that changes human behavior. So the idea is that um, these ideas, are they don't spread as a result of being true. They spread as a result of being highly contagious and being easily believed, basically. So those are the two factors that, that cause ideas to spread from mind to mind. And that's why whatever's popular is not always what, what, what's true. You know, things can be popular because they're simply contagious, that they go viral, so to speak. And um, it's not just, you know, things don't just go viral online. They also go viral in the real world from mind to mind. And that's what happens with certain ideas. And this thing that you're talking about, about sort of the corruption of, of the social sciences, I think this is one of these sort of viral diseases. It's a disease that has spread from mind to mind, not as a result of its being true, but as a result of being contagious. And so you've got to ask yourself, so what makes it contagious? I think that there are many factors that make the current ideas that are dominant 
in sort of the social sciences contagious. So I know that we're going to get on to sort of uh, gender ideology and, and all that sort of stuff. So this is um, part of a broader assault, as it were, on, on the sciences, on social sciences, um, which some people might refer to as wokeness or wokeism. You know, uh, it's not a very... It's not a very fashionable word anymore, but it's really the best sort of description that we have. You know, we don't really have any other better words for it. So I'm going to have to call it wokeism. But what it is, is it's this idea that things like gender and race are myths. Uh, They're just constructions of the human mind. The main problems in the world are due to discrimination, um, you know, based on gender or race again. That race and gender are central issues in society. And, you know, people who, who don't, identify with a certain uh, gender, for instance, can be fixed by just changing their bodies rather than, you know, changing their minds. Um, it's just, it, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack in wokeness because it's a very complex sort of ideology and it, it takes elements from postmodernism. It takes elements from uh, cultural Marxism, you know, it takes a lot of these ideas. Uh, so the cultural Marxism of Antonio Gramsci and, uh, and, and people like that, and the Frankfurt School, and postmodernism of, of Foucault, and it sort of marries these ideas. These are ideas that have been gestating in academia for decades, um, nearly a century. These ideas are contagious because of several reasons. One of the reasons is that they offer easy answers to people, and I think people want easy answers to the mind's problems. Uh, people want to believe that, oh, you know, if you're feeling depressed or you're feeling ang- anxious. All you've got to do is uh, just do this, or all you've got to do is blame this this person. You just got to, you know, it's all the fault of straight white men, or you know, it's all the fault of, of you know racists or whatever. You know, you just blame, you just scapegoat all your problems, all your psychological problems on someone outside yourself, and therefore you absolve yourself of responsibility. You don't have any responsibility for your own condition. And therefore, you know, it, it's somebody else's fault, so you can relax and just blame them. So there's this element of convenience to this ideology because it tends to take the blame off yourself. You, you don't, you're not responsible for your own mind. You know, it's, it's other people's fault. But there's also, um, you know, the, the, the compassion as well. There's this sort of fake compassion that uh, these ideologies often uh, generate where, you know, they, they seem to make people seem like they are cosmopolitan and uh, they're very you know uh, awake that's what hence the term woke they're very awake to uh, social issues about you know racism and, and uh, transphobia and misogyny and all these sorts of things so people want to believe they want to feel and they want you to believe that they're compassionate you know it makes people feel good when they feel compassionate and so a lot of this is is really a result of unbridled empathy it's people who are following their hearts rather than their heads, I think. Um, because it's, it's easy to just be, you know, completely and infinitely empathic towards those who are deemed to be um, downtrodden or you know, outsiders, people like the trans people, for instance. It's very easy just to have a very open heart to them and just to say, yes, you know, we love you and, you know, uh, all your pro- everything you say is true. You know, you know everything is other people's fault. You have no responsibility for your condition. You know, it's all other people's faults. It's a very easy way to to, to live. It takes a lot more uh, strength, I think, mental strength to 
try to look at things from an objective point of view and to say, okay, uh, yes, you know, we recognize that you have a problem. You know, we recognize that your, your mind and your body don't align. Um, but that, that's not necessarily going to be cured by you just changing or having surgery on your body, for instance. It's not a simple solution. If you actually look at the statistics, it shows that there's a lot of people who regret that choice. So, you know, maybe you should try, instead of changing your body, maybe you should try changing your mind, you know, to bring your mind in alignment with your body. Uh, these are things that, that are not considered uh, in the main, mainstream of psychology. and they, they would be considered transphobic because they fall outside of the realm of acceptable discourse. And the range of acceptable discourse is set by the ideologues, by the people who have captured the, the social sciences. You know, the social sciences have been captured by people who tend to follow their hearts rather than their heads and who tend to offer easy answers to people and to reduce people's agency in the process by blaming other people uh, rather than the, the you know, it, it, it's what some people refer to as a victimhood mentality uh, where you know you, you tend to sort of project out any kind of problems you have inside yourself so if you feel anxious it's not a result of your mind that's generating this anxiety it's a result of something outside of yourself something you have no control over that's causing that anxiety. People seem to assume that just because you feel anxiety, that there must be some cause outside yourself. So people seem to think that their emotions reflect reality, but that's not what emotions do. Emotions do not reflect reality. Emotions exist only in your mind. You know, they're, they're a function of your mind. They're an illusion that your mind creates in order to motivate you towards a certain behavior. So People mix up emotions from reality, and that's why there's this common saying amongst conservatives, which is that facts don't care about your feelings. You know, it's it's a it's a common refrain against um, against this kind of wokeism, which is trying to emphasise the importance of emotions over over facts. So the lived experience, as they say in their own terms, the lived experience is all. It's the most important thing. This is why I'm very, even though I think psychology is a very important subject, I'm very very wary of it. I think that a lot of it has been taken over by this kind of thinking, by this thinking that your emotions do reflect reality. And if you feel something, then it's true. You know, that's a very, very dangerous path to go down, I think, because science is supposed to be divorced from emotion. Science is supposed to be about fact. It's supposed to be about logic. It's supposed to be about it. The whole reason science exists is to counterbalance your emotions to basically offer you something that your emotions can't, which is objective reality. You know, emotions offer you subjective reality, but they can't offer you objectivity. So to confuse the two, I think, is very dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why we have a, a replication crisis, I think, uh, in, in, in social sciences, where almost half of all psychological studies don't replicate. That is, when, when another experimenter tries to replicate the, the findings of a previous researcher, they come to completely different results. And I think a large reason for that is due to ideological trespassing into the realm of psychology. So I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but... Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. We have so much ground to cover. I'll, I'll share what was sparked in my mind hearing you speak. I'm going to go in kind of a different direction. You talk about empathy and the kind of downside of empathy when we allow our emotions to overshadow our capacity for reason. And 
I want to compare and contrast the idea of empathy with theory of mind, right? A more detached analytical ability to mentalize, to put yourself in someone else's shoes dispassionately, which can be a more valuable tool, I think, for empathy in the long run and a more nuanced one. I see with the, I'm going to call it splitting going on right now, of the good guys and bad guys that you were talking about, I see that leading us in a direction, along with many other social and cultural trends, of cultivating personality disorders. So the traits of borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, if you look at those traits and how people with those disorders behave, right now I have concerns that our culture is actively promoting the ways of thinking and relating to other people that create those types of personalities. And one feature of borderline personality disorder is a propensity for splitting. Splitting is a primitive psychological defense where uh, someone is viewed as either all good and all bad or all bad. And how this originates early in childhood is usually a traumatic environment in which uh, the person's attachment system, as it was developing in the early years, their limbic system, ability to bond with other people, was got its wires crossed because let's say there was a parent who was nurturing and affectionate some days, violent and abusive other days. Well, the young mind can't handle that, can't handle being attached to someone so important to you as a parent who's that who fluctuates that widely. And so what happens as as a way of protecting the young mind from this is splitting, where they form two separate mental images of the parent. There's good mom and bad mom, or good dad and bad dad. And so the way this manifests in adulthood in people who had that experience developmentally is that they uh, will kind of a, a switch will get flipped. And it could be a small thing that someone they are attached to says or does that switches them from idealizing to demonizing. And um, this causes a lot of distress and dysfunction in the lives of people who have this disorder, as well as those around them. Um, So it's a really kind of primitive way of conceptualizing other people uh, to see them as kind of a two-dimensional caricature of this idealized or this demonic figure. And What I see going on in our culture right now is a lot of splitting, a lot of viewing of other people in these black and white terms that are are pretty immature and don't allow for um, an integrated, mature theory of mind, one in which we uh, have the perspective to see most people as having simultaneously, quote unquote, good and quote unquote, bad parts of themselves, that as humans, we have lower nature and higher nature. Most of us at any given moment are negotiating between many different concerns and drives that affect our behavior in in ways that you may or may not like. My concern right now is that the kind of of primitive um, psychological defenses, the dysregulated attachment, And the emphasis on emotional empathy instead of theory of mind is exacerbating these dilemmas. 
Do you ever look at um, sort of the developmental psychology of how this forms or what thoughts does that spark in you? So this is something that I've thought about quite a bit, but I don't really look at it from a developmental point of view. I look at it more from an evolutionary point of view. So for me, my theory about this is that um, this splitting or Manichaeism, which is the the division of people into good and evil, I think goes back to our hunter-gatherer past um, when we lived in tribal societies. So approximately 95% of human evolution uh, was during our time as hunter-gatherers because we've been hunter-gatherers for about 180,000 years and we've been around for about 200,000 years. So, uh, so sorry, about 90%, 90%. So since the majority of our evolution took place when we were hunter-gatherers, we're still carrying a lot of legacy code, as it were, in our brains from that, from that period. We haven't really adapted to the current industrial society that we're in. We're still living in the past, as it were, evolutionarily. Now, the reason why it was beneficial evolutionarily for us to split people into good and evil was because it allowed us to justify tribalism and to, to eliminate our enemies without mercy because that's what we needed to do, because resources were, were low and it was, it was kill or be killed. You, know, you, had to, you had to have a rationale for complete, being completely merciless towards your enemies. Empathy is obviously needed throughout evolution when we were living in tribal societies. You needed to be empathic towards the people within your tribe because you needed to stick together. You needed to work together to, to live. But you needed to have zero empathy for your enemies because if you had empathy for your enemies, then the least empathic of your enemies would destroy you. They would, they would have less empathy than you, so they would be less merciful than you, and they would go that extra mile to destroy you. And so it was necessary to cut off empathy towards your enemies in order to survive, because it was tribal warfare. You know, there was, like I said, resources were low, and there were only, could only be one winner in a certain patch of land. So we developed this sense of Manichaeanism, which is we tended to evolve religions which justified our beliefs, justified our views of the world, justified our tribes, and condemned our enemies and made it okay for us to rationalize their destruction. And so we still have this in our minds. Um, we still have this kind of legacy code in our minds, even though we're no longer living in tribal societies. You know, we're living in a completely different world now where we're a global village, as it were. But because the vast majority of our evolution took place when we were hunter-gatherers. We still, the majority of our brains are still living in that period. And so we're playing catch-up. And what technology has done, it hasn't civilized us. We've primitivized it. We've, we've, we've assimilated technology into our tribal worldview. So now you see the same thing happening again, this tribal manichaeanism. You see it happening on Twitter where people form tribes on Twitter and they fight each other. So you've got, you know, now you've got the left and the right who are going at it. And you've even got, even within the left and the right, you've got subsections of them who are fighting each other. So on the left, you've got the, the, the gender ideologues fighting against the TERFs and the gender critical people. Uh, on the right, you know, you've got the sort of Trumpian uh, re Republicans fighting against the never Trumpers and you know, you've got all this, all these subdivisions, but it's all tribal. It's all, we're good. Our enemies are evil. That's it. It's that simple. 
And that it helps people get through their lives. It also, I think, in a sense, gives people meaning because it makes you feel like you are on the right side of history, that you're doing something good for humanity and it justifies your hatred. I think people, in a sense, feel the need to hate just as much as they feel the need to love. I think uh, people need something to direct their hatred towards. And because it, it's like they're sort of essentially, it's like a kind of catharsis for them. You know, they, they choose something that they don't like in this world and then they direct all their hatred towards it. And that's, I think, where scapegoating comes from is that it just makes it easier to focus all of your hatred on one thing rather than to sort of see everything as it is. So I think that's why we tend, when it comes to this theory of mind versus this Manichaeanism, I think Manichaeanism just tends to win through because theory of mind was not evolutionarily beneficial towards people who are in the outgroup. It's easy for people who are in the in-group. It's easy for people who are part of your tribes, which is why it comes naturally to people who are part of our tribe, you know. But the only, I think, the only real compassion is when you have compassion for people you don't agree with. Because if you have compassion, because compassion is supposed to be selfless, yeah? And if you have compassion for people who are in your tribe, that's not selfless, is it? You're serving your own interests when you have compassion for people who are in your tribe, uh, because you're, you're helping the tribe, which is helping you. So the only true compassion, I think, is when you have compassion for people who you don't agree with. And that's very rare in this world. It's very rare because in order to have that kind of compassion, you have to surmount your evolutionary makeup. You have to overcome your evolution, your biological evolution, which is, I think, a very difficult thing. Beautifully put, sort of um, transcending that tribal instinct to something more universal. You talk about the evolutionary perspective on why it is that we split people into good and bad. And I want to add to that, that not only were we under pressure from, you know, as you said, shortages of natural resources and so on to do that, but also we had to make split second decisions when we encountered a stranger in the woods. We had to instantly be able to recognize, is this a member of my tribe or another tribe? Is this someone I'm going to fight, to mate with, to share with? Um, is this person a threat to me and my community? And so it was adaptive to be able to make those judgment calls very quickly. And I think that is one of the origins of why we have these heuristics, these mental shortcuts, whereby it takes very little interaction with someone uh, to gather just enough information to put them in one camp or the other. And then once we've put them in the camp, of you're not part of my tribe, then, like you say, uh, it almost feels like our duty um, out of love for our people to shun, vilify, and as I was saying in my article the other day, I think to quarantine. So I want to explore with you some of the concepts from my article. So as as some listeners know, I as of today's recording date, July 22nd, I'm locked out of my primary Twitter account, which is at some therapist. And I'd love if we have time to get into the, the um, precise tweet that got me into trouble. Um, so if I'm still locked out as of this uh, as a, as of the time that this episode airs, um, or just for general future safeguarding, please also follow me at some underscore therapist. Um, so I wrote an article on my blog 
earlier this week after getting locked out of Twitter, and you can find that article at my blog at sometherapist.com slash read. In this article, I talked about, as I was saying earlier, psychological germ theory and how I got into Twitter jail has to do with the freedom versus safety dichotomy that we are always navigating as human beings. So part of why I'm in trouble is because there are people who think that my ideas are dangerous and need to be quarantined so that they don't infect other people. Um, So there's that instinct. I've been judged as one of the bad guys. So we have to protect our tribe from the bad guys and their diseased ideas. And so it's the idea that their safety requires putting limits on my freedom, my freedom of expression. But I want to be fair and say that that dynamic is flowing both ways. The things that they're trying to silence in me are things that could be viewed as my attempt to silence them. In other words, to limit their freedoms in the name of safety. By that, I mean that I'm outspoken about pediatric gender transition as something that I want to protect people from. Now, people on the other side of that debate, uh, I don't agree with them, but they see that as me posing a threat to their freedom and safety by trying to limit their freedom to do the things that they think are right. So it's this freedom versus safety uh, dichotomy on both ends that causes uh, sort of warring tribes to want to censor each other and try to prevent the viral spread of ideas they view as dangerous that they need to quarantine each other from. Which brings up that question, how do you know if you're infected with a psychological virus? How do you know if your instinct to silence someone or to amplify someone's voice? How do you know if you're read on who's the right tribe and who's the wrong tribe? How do you know that you are on the right side of history? One of the most important questions that anybody posed to me in the last few years was the question, how do you know you're on the right side of history? And I realized I didn't because I realized that human history is full of people thinking they were on the right side of history who, in hindsight, we think of as having been on the wrong side of history. So, yeah, like you said, there is no way we can know for sure that we're right. It's just simply not possible. But what we can do is, and this is the approach that I take, which is to assume that you're wrong and to try to be less wrong. And that's a much better way than trying to be right, because you start from a position that you're wrong. And so you have to bear in mind all of the biases that could be affecting you. And one by one, you start to know these biases, you start to learn about these biases. If you assume that you're wrong, you're going to, it's going to be much easier for you to find the things that are making you wrong. Whereas if you start from the position that you're right, your brain is going to be immunized against any knowledge that will prove you wrong, you know, because the brain tends to sort of rationalize things. And so if you uh, are, you know, if you say that, yeah, I'm right, that's it, I'm right. But you start from that position, you're not going to think that any of these biases that you encounter apply to you. But if you start from the position that, okay, I'm wrong, it's just a case of how wrong am I? And then you'll become much more open to looking at what's affecting you. And when I say you start from the position that you're wrong, that doesn't mean that you start from the position that your opponents are right. I don't do that. I start from the position that every single human being is wrong because I think that's the natural state of a human being. 
the natural state of a human being is to be wrong. That's because our brains are just beset by so many biases, so many fallacies, so many prejudices, that it simply is not possible for a human being to start off correct. And I don't think that it's actually even possible for a human being to be correct, like to, be, to, to find truth with a capital T, as it were, because we perceive only a tiny proportion of everything that there is to know in this world. You know, you could use the, the sort of analogy of, of our eyes. Our eyes only see the visible light spectrum, which is a tiny fraction of the entire elect electromagnetic spectrum. You know, we only see visible light. We feel a little bit of infrared, and that's it. The, the vast majority of the whole spectrum of information is completely, we're blind to, completely blind to. And so, you know, we, you could say that, and you could also say we only perceive the world in three dimensions, whereas according to string theory, there may be 21 dimensions, you know, there may be more than that. There may be multiple universes. So we only see a tiny percentage of reality. We see a fraction of a fraction of reality. And so we can never assume that we fully know anything. And that's, I think, the most important thing, the starting point for any pursuit of knowledge is to know the limits of knowledge. And once you start from that position, it becomes a lot easier to, uh, to live and to just sort of learn as well, because you realize since you know so little, it makes you humble. And when you're humble, you're much more open to learning. It's when you become convinced that you're on the right side of history, that's when you are in trouble, because that's when your mind is blind to its biases, because you are so convinced that you're right, that nothing is going to convince you you're wrong, you know, because you think you're, you're thinking of things in terms of this kind of grand mythological narrative that you're like a Hercules or a Orpheus or a Perseus, you know, that you're this mythological hero in this grand narrative of, of history and, you know, you're going to slay the dragon. When you start thinking like that, then you're not thinking in reality. You're not, you're not, you're not embracing reality. And so uh, that, those are the people I worry about, the people who are convinced that they're on the right side of history. I think that those are the people who end up being the, I don't want to be dramatic, but they're the kinds of people who end up being the Hitlers and the, the Stalins of the world, you know, the people that are convinced that they're, they're morally just and that they're correct and, you know, everybody else is wrong. I think that we should be a much more like the sort of Socrates of the world who know that they know so little and yet that doesn't doesn't demotivate them to learn they're not like oh it's all useless they 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 just begin from that position but they know that they can learn more they can be less wrong and that's their goal to be less wrong over time by one by one slowly eliminating the biases that affect them identifying them and eliminating them by overcoming them so that's the process i take you know i don't know there's so much i don't know about this world but I know that. I know I'm aware of that, you know, and that is for me the, the thing that keeps me from being completely deluded. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. 
Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Earlier, you talked about what are some of the traits that make an idea contagious. And the flip side of exploring that question is what makes for psychological vulnerability or immunity to contagious ideas? Sort of like, you know, what makes a virus or bacteria contagious is an important question. And also, what makes for a healthy immune system is an important question. So here I hear you getting into what makes for a healthy psychological immune system, starting from the assumption you're wrong. And I touched on this from a different angle in that article yesterday. I talked about how important it is, I think, to get into the habit of grappling with cognitive dissonance. So an example um, would be if you think of yourself as a compassionate, fair-minded person and a non-judgmental person, but you find yourself behaving in a way that you are calling someone names and trying to destroy their reputation, if you can recognize that there's a cognitive dissonance there and get curious about that, that really helps protect you. It could be that you discover when you go, huh, I think of myself as a compassionate and non-judgmental person. I'm not actually behaving like one. Then you can open the door and discover what the infection might be. It turns on your psychological immune system to root out the problem. So you can maybe through examining it, discover that you've actually been infected with an idea, a contagious idea that through a complex set of notions Um, leads you to believe, as its other adherents believe, that the best way to express your compassion is to understand that group X is a group of victims, group Y is a group of perpetrators, and the best way for you to express your compassion is to silence group Y by any means possible to protect the righteous group X. If you realize you've fallen prey to this narrative and that you question whether that narrative is true, then you can see this is how my vulnerability, my compassion, my values has been exploited 
and a virus got in, a virus that used my energy against me to self-destruct. And it actually broke my dignity and integrity because I'm no longer in integrity with my values if I'm acting this way. Then I can see, oh, I've been tricked. Just like viruses trick your own body's cells and your healthy bacteria's cells into doing their own bidding, into replicating them. And just like parasites can cause organisms to act against their own best interests, we can become infected with these psychological concepts that cause us to act against our own behavior, against our own values and against our own best interest. So when you talk about starting from the position that you're wrong and trying to be less wrong working from there, I see how that relates to the the concept of getting in the habit of regularly grappling with cognitive dissonance, examining yourself for parts of yourself that don't line up contradictory thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. If you have a positive attitude toward doing that work on a regular basis, it's like It's like doing regular workouts or taking your vitamins. You're strengthening your mind so that your mind is prepared to fight off ideas that uh, go against your your health and dignity. Yeah, I think um, it's always helpful to view yourself as, as what you are, which is we're all apes, right? And we have this sort of base architecture, which is irrational, which is always working against our higher brain. So... Inside every human being, there's this conflict between, you know, their long-term interests and their sort of short-term appetites. Uh, and you see this on Twitter often where people are trying to be compassionate. They're trying to do the right thing for humanity, as it were. They're trying to be on the right side of history. But then you see them celebrating the death of someone that they didn't like. Um, you see them, I mean, quite recently, uh, the, the Queen's husband died. I just got a bit of a weird uh, vacuum in my brain at the moment. But he, yeah, he passed away. and. Um, Because he was quite conservative in some of his views, I saw a Guardian journalist uh, celebrating his death. And, you know, in her sort of bio, she was praised, you know, she was basically celebrating how compassionate she was, you know, with her her pronouns and and all this other stuff. And um, I saw, you know, I thought there's this weird dichotomy where you have this, this woman who thinks that she's really compassionate. And perhaps she is, perhaps she actually is in her daily, daily life. She's a compassionate person. And yet she's she's celebrating the death of a guy she didn't even know, she, somebody she'd never met. You know, she's actually happy about it. And she was talking about what she was going to do, about you know she was going to let off fireworks and stuff because this guy had died. And you see this kind of weird dissonance between her stated compassion and her, her complete sort of ruthlessness in a sense. You see this often with people who are extremely compassionate on the outside they tend to be extremely ruthless towards people that they deem to be in the outgroup. And I think a lot of this comes from certainty. A lot of this is, it's a, certainty is a double, double-edged sword. Certainty allows you to be very, very compassionate towards people you think deserve it. But it also allows you to be extremely evil and, and ruthless towards people who you think deserve it as well. So it's a double-edged sword. And this is why empathy can be a dangerous thing because if you have a lot of empathy for one certain group of people, then you can justify any number of cruelties against another group of people, against the people that you believe are victimizing those you have empathy for. And I think what really helps is what you were saying earlier, is having a theory of mind rather than just blind compassion. I think if you just follow your emotions and just sort of you know, feel sorry for people, I think that's a very dangerous thing to do because that feeling sorry can very easily turn into feeling malicious towards another group. So the good thing about a theory of mind is that it's an, it's 
emotionless. It's more of a detached sort of view of things. And so this theory of mind is something that people should also apply to themselves. I think if you have a theory of mind towards yourself, towards your own mind, in a sense, and to try to understand your own motivations and try to understand uh, why you are doing certain things from a detached point of view, mind you, not, you know, not to sort of uh, reinforce your own beliefs or reinforce your own prejudices, but to actually take a step back and to look at yourself and say, why did I just celebrate this person's death, even though I don't know him? If you really interrogate yourself, you know, then, and you do it honestly, this is, this is a very difficult thing to do, to interrogate yourself honestly. Uh, I think that's where you can try to sort of see the things that are distorting your, your view of things. You know, the only problem is, is that it's a very painful thing to do. It's very painful to interrogate yourself honestly. You know, when, when people try to think about their own views, they tend to just assume that they believe things because they're true or because they're, you know, because they're logical. And I do this too. You know, we all do this. We tend to believe that our beliefs are logical. We believe things because we're logical. Other people believe things because they have a psychological condition. And this is, I think, is very dangerous. I think, um, you know, I've been trying not to do this as of late because I've, I've found that I'm, I'm quite liable. I do this a lot because of my interest in biases and because of my interest in fallacies. I've become very good at spotting fallacies and biases in other people, but it's very hard for me sometimes to spot them in myself. And so... Sometimes what I do is I, um, I use a mental model where I pretend that my beliefs are other people's beliefs. So what I do is, uh, you know, if I, if I write something, if I write like an opinion, if I write a tweet, for instance, what I do is I read that tweet back as though it was written by somebody who is my worst enemy or somebody who I do not respect. You know? <laughs> and it's interesting because I find that almost instantly, my perception of that tweet changes. My, my perception of the opinion changes. And suddenly, I find all these flaws and all these fallacies in reasoning that I didn't see before. And this is something that I've been doing for a couple of years. It's taken me practice to do this. But it's such an amazing thing. When you, when you really learn to do it properly, it, it really opens your eyes to how blind you are to your own biases and how, you know, sort of you, you, even if you're good at spotting them in other people, you just don't spot them in yourself. It's a very interesting uh, uh, mental model to use. As part of that self-examination that you try to regularly engage in and that you recommend to other people, it seems like an important question to ask, what appeals to me about this? You know, mm. there again is I kind of looking for the cracks in our immune systems, right? So earlier you talked about what appeals to me about being a compassionate person, seeing myself as a compassionate person, being seen as a member of the tribe who's valuable and who has the desirable traits. You also talked about, you know, what's appealing about a victim mentality where you have the convenience of blaming someone else rather than doing the harder work of taking responsibility and, and self-examining. Um, so let's explore a few of those vulnerabilities what are some of our base instincts, our core human longings, values, needs, and emotions that make us susceptible to uh, fallacies and distortions? Oh, this is a broad question. So, um, so the basic idea, I think, is that the brain is not a truth-finding machine. It doesn't exist to find truth. 
it exists for survival. That's what it's configured for. That's what hundreds of thousands of years or even millions of years have slowly shaped it into. They've shaped it into a, a machine that helps you survive, that doesn't find truth, just only is only interested in truth insofar as it helps you survive. So this is the basic foundation for all the biases we have, because those biases are things that might have helped us survive in the past. So they, they began as heuristics. But what happened was that because our environment is, is changing all the time, some of these things became maladaptive. And when they became maladaptive, they, uh, they went from heuristics to biases. So they went from assets to liabilities. And on another sort of axis, what's happened is that we've become interested in, in rational thinking. We've become interested in thought only recently in our, in our history. You know, the, the sort of scientific revolution was only 300 years ago. Uh, you know, so we we kind of we haven't been interested in truth for very long, sort of thing. You know, we, we kind of. Uh, sorry, do you want to say something? Perhaps the Stoics and Buddhists, though, represent a few kind of older classes of individuals who are interested in truth. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, in terms of sort of being scientifically minded, I think that science before it was called natural philosophy, and it was more of a philosophy, like the Stoics. And stuff. I'm a big fan of the Stoics. And I think that they did a great job with their, with their sort of revolutions in thinking. But I think that the scientific method and empiricism and these kinds of things, these are quite modern inventions and really only sort of result from the sort of scientific revolution uh, and the Renaissance and that sort of thing. Um, so this kind of approach to truth has only recently entered our history. You know? I mean, even if you count the Stoics, that's 2,000 years. That's, that's a... A drop in the ocean compared to all of the years before that in which we've been on this earth. So tiny, tiny fraction of human evolution has been spent in this pursuit of science, in this pursuit of reason. And all of the stuff before it has been existing purely for survival, really. And as a result of that, we're, we're playing catch up, you know, we're playing catch up. So we, what we need to do is we need to realize that we're tribal beings and all, a lot of the sort of fallacies and biases that we actually have are a result of our tribal nature. Uh, so, you know, you have things like the minimal group paradigm, for instance, the minimal group paradigm is quite an interesting uh, concept within psychology, which is the idea that you can split people according to you know, very, very arbitrary and very trivial uh, categories. So you could split people into favorite ice cream flavor, for instance. And when you do that, these groups, so say if you split uh, a group of people into two groups and one of them are people who prefer uh, strawberry ice cream and the other group prefer chocolate ice cream. What will happen is that over time, these two groups will develop a rivalry and they will develop in-group biases and they will develop outgroup uh, discrimination. So they will discriminate against people from the other tribe, and they will favour people their own on their own tribe. And you know this is this is quite a robust finding. This has been replicated as well. So this is one of the sort of foundations for a lot of the biases we have. It's the idea that we tend to favour our tribe over the truth. We don't, you know, human beings are not really that interested in truth. We pretend that we are a lot of the time, but we're more interested in our tribe even though we don't really live in tribal societies anymore. So this is why they manifest in weird ways, such as polarization on social media. 
because we're still following tribal heuristics rather than sort of you know truth heuristics. Another a sort of uh, reason that we have many of our fallacies and biases is that the human brain is a is designed to survive, but it's designed to survive without expending too much energy and without expending too much time. Because historically and evolutionarily, we needed to make a lot of decisions very, very quickly and without much effort. Because if we didn't, we would die. Because we'd get, you know, if, if you're getting chased by a tiger, you don't have time to stop and ponder you know, a tiger, you have to just instantly react and you have to do it quickly. And also you have to expend minimal energy when you're doing it, because if your brain is using up too much energy on, on thinking, then your dietary needs are going to increase and your chances of starvation and exhaustion are going to increase. So the brain is configured to take shortcuts in reasoning, which are heuristics essentially. And these heuristics are what cause many of our fallacies. They're in fr- the vast majority of our fallacies and biases are a result of heuristics. So for instance, uh, there's something known as predictive coding, which is a perceptual bias. Predictive coding is that your brain is essentially like a, a phone with autocomplete. So you know what autocomplete is, um, but just for your audiences, it's the thing that uh, when you type a message into WhatsApp or into a text, uh, what happens is that your is that the phone will... Uh, correct and complete the sentence before you finish typing it. So if you start off and you type something like um, A-B-R-A, then it will complete it as abracadabra. You know, <laughs> that's just a silly example, but that's just a you know, basic, basic idea. So it completes what it thinks you're going to type. And that's what your brain does as well, because it, it doesn't have the energy to process, to visually process everything you see. It doesn't have the energy for that. It doesn't have the time for that because visual processing is something that takes time and it takes a lot of energy for the brain. So what your brain does is it takes a few cues from your visual environment and then it joins the dots between them to create a picture in your in your head. And this is why there are some things like um, attentional blindness, for instance. Attentional blindness is something that's been replicated quite, quite a lot in, in, in psychology. It's the, this idea that you can sometimes be completely blind to something that's in your field of vision. And that's because your brain has auto-completed your perceptual field, but it hasn't completed that, that image because it's, it doesn't know that that image is there because it's, it might be um, relying on information about that field from yesterday, for instance, rather than from the day that you're actually looking at it. So if you, another example would be if you're taking the same route to work every single day, uh, it would be costly energetically for your brain to reprocess everything you see on your way to work. So instead, what it will do is it will superimpose images that your brain has collected from its memory of your previous routes through that, that to work. So if you, see, if you pass the same tree every day on, on the way to work, instead of processing that tree as a, as a new object each day, which would be costly for the brain, it instead superimposes a memory of, your, of that tree onto that position where that tree was yesterday, if you know what I mean. So it, it basically auto-completes that tree. And that saves energy and it saves time, but it can also blind you to things that you're overly familiar with. So this is an example of something that was an asset in our evolutionary history because it allowed us to see things quickly and it allowed us to make decisions quickly and with minimal energy. But nowadays, it causes attentional blindness. And this is, so this is a good example of how an, uh, a, a heuristic can become a flaw or a fallacy in our thinking. 
And this is essentially the case with all of the biases and all of the fallacies that we have now. They're all a result either of tribal thinking or of um, efficiency, essentially, in, in, in thinking. So efficiency by eliminating time costs and eliminating energy costs in reasoning. It takes more energy and conscious effort to think things through in the ways that we're talking about. And yet there's there's a danger in not having that skill set, right? The danger of engaging in tribalism that leads us down paths that result in, in war, conflict, and, and the breakdown of society. I think that we often don't give enough credit to how much work it really takes to think and that, you know, we live in sort of the attention economy where there are constantly so many inputs fighting for our attention and we can have anything at the push of the button. So there's a sense of never-ending abundance, but I think that we'd be better off imposing some limits by thinking about how much energy we actually have in a day. It's it's not unlimited, both mm. physical and mental time and energy, right? So real work is exhausting. And yeah. I think that people can, you know, one of the things people can do to help is to actually expect less of yourself in a given day and give yourself enough credit for the time and energy that it's going to take to think something through and and respond thoughtfully. And we also need to train our awareness to be able to recognize what's urgent and can maybe handle or benefit from a quick response um, versus what is not urgent but could use a, a greater depth of awareness. I wanted to talk to you about propaganda and and two things come to mind, right? So one is the thing that I'm in Twitter jail for, uh, which is for questioning the slogan, trans rights are human rights, by evaluating some common demands made of trans rights activists that uh, are excessive compared to the human rights that any other group expects. Another thing that's been on my mind propaganda-wise is that a movie trailer I shared with you before we met today uh, for the new horror film made by Peacock called They Slash Them. It takes a couple of minutes to watch the trailer. So for anyone interested, I recommend actually pausing this conversation and taking two or three minutes, head on over to YouTube, watch the trailer for They Slash Them. I, I shared this with Gorinder right before we started recording, and I feel like there's so much propaganda in this trailer. I really want to pick it apart with you. What were your thoughts on that? It was just horrifying. I mean, <laughs> in the worst way. I mean, um, it's this kind of thing I've, I've come to expect from Hollywood, to be honest. Um, we saw it with Karen. I don't know if you saw the, the trailer for Karen. There was a, a horror movie about a white woman, an old white, uh, middle-aged white woman called Karen. You know, it fits oh, in no. with this whole kind of, who's basically a racist and, you know, a bigot and a, you know, a transphobe. And all. basically it's the same kind for of thing. For complaining to the manager. Yeah, yeah. But but they made it into a race thing. They made it into, because she's white and her next door neighbours are black. And because she's a Karen, because she's a middle-aged white woman, um, she's obviously a bad person. You know, that was the mm -hmm. gist of it, basically. And so you should beware of middle-aged white women. Just, just standard Hollywood stuff. I mean, um, I think Hollywood has been completely captured by wokeism. And, and the reason for this is that it's an image-oriented field. It's an image-oriented industry. Um, you know, you find that people in 
everyone will say this as well. I've never been to Hollywood, so I can't say what it's actually like in Hollywood. But pretty much everybody who I has grew been up to Hollywood. Nearby. Oh, right. Okay. So you could probably tell me something about this. But everybody I've, you know, people like Joe Rogan, everybody I've listened to who live in that area have told me that Hollywood is basically just fake as hell. It's just filled with fake people who are all image orientated. They don't, you know, there's no real substance behind it. It's all style. I think that this makes sense when you consider what the actual industry does. It's all about image. It's about putting out an image and an ideal for people to aspire to. And so it's going to be a place where a lot of people who are interested in image above everything else congregate. Now, wokeism is great for image. You know, if you're woke, you're going to be deemed to be compassionate. You're going to be deemed to be cosmopolitan. You're going to be deemed to be xenophilic. You know, you're going to be deemed to be just a really great person, very sophisticated, very cultured. You know, if you're woke, if you believe, you know, in things like, uh, you know, uh, toxic masculinity or whatever, you know, like you, if you talk about these things a lot, people go, oh, you know, he's really clued up or she's really clued up. You know, she's been reading the New York Times. Wow. Amazing. You know, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that that these people are impressed by. And so it's no wonder that that Hollywood being an image oriented industry has been captured by this image oriented ideology. I think that it's it's quite dangerous in a sense because it I wouldn't normally have a problem with wokeness or wokeism if it hadn't captured the West's cultural institutions. And it's not just Hollywood. It's also academia. It's also broadcasting. It's publishing. In publishing, you've got things like sensitivity readers now, you know, where every time you you send a manuscript off, you actually have a woke ideologue who reads your, your manuscript and, you know, has forces you to remove anything problematic. Uh, anything that they may be considered culturally insensitive. So this thing is not just consigned to Hollywood. This this film, this trailer that you showed me, this is just one tiny symptom of a much broader problem, which is that the swathes of our cultural institutions in the West have been captured by this ideology, which is, like you said, it, it demonizes people by dividing people into good and evil, by carrying this splitting, which is, this is a perfect example of that splitting that you were talking about, where you now have, you know, these young, innocent kids who don't fit in and, you know, oh, you know, they're just kind of like just outsiders and they're the, they're the underdogs. It's a classic underdog story. And then you've got these establishment figures who are basically the parents of, or the, the owners of this ranch who are the kind of, they represent uh, the straight white patriarchy or, or whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the, the sort of the group of people that are trying to oppress everybody else by forcing them in, into these categories of male and female or whatever, you know. So it's, 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 a classic, it's a classic story that's been told again and again and again throughout history, but just the parts are different. The people are playing different parts. So the Nazis had their versions of this where the underdogs were the German people and then the, good, the, the evil villains, the, the people who were oppressing everybody else were the Jews. You know, you, you have it with the with Stalinist Russia, and I'm not saying that these things are equivalent. I'm just saying that these, you know, that this is something that you find throughout history. Uh, with Stalin, you know, you had the bourgeoisie who are the evil oppressors against the sort of the proletariat who's the, the oppressed. So you, you always have these stories of, of an oppressor tyrannizing an oppressed person. It's just that the, the, the roles change. Who plays the oppressor? Who plays the oppressed? They change throughout history. But you find the same thing going on throughout history all the time. It's the same story over and over again. And there's actually a, a you might you might know something about this because there's a 
psychotherapist, uh, I think his name was Cartman, and he, um, he came up with the Cartman drama triangle, which is, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think this is quite apt. Um, it's this idea that people tend to view uh, human relations in terms of this kind of triangle and, and where you have like a, an oppressor, you have a, a, a victim, and then you have a rescuer. And you see this again and again in a lot of, you know, sort of what people tend to comprehend human relations in terms of this triangle. So you see it everywhere, you know, and you see it particularly in Hollywood now with this role being played. You know, you've got the, the oppressors being played by Kevin Bacon in this case, you know, and you've got the uh, obviously the, the victims are the kids. And then the rescuer, there's obviously going to be a hero in there somewhere. I don't know who the rescuer is because it wasn't shown in the trailer, but there will be a rescuer. It might just be the kids themselves. They'll probably just have a revolution or whatever. And it will you know, show that you know, love and acceptance and diversity, equity and inclusion is, is more powerful than hate or whatever, you know, the standard cliched message that they, they give out. But yeah, it's nothing new. It's just a continuation of the same thing over and over again. And, and it's worrying because... The reason why, like I said, the reason why I am, I find wokeism to be something dangerous, and the reason why I I speak out against it, is because it has captured the West's cultural institutions, and therefore it has control over the West's information traffic. And I'm somebody who's very interested in information. You know, I ordinarily wouldn't be I wouldn't be interested in wokeism if it was consigned to academia, like it was for, you know, for the latter half of the 20th century. I wouldn't find it a problem, even though it's wrong, even though it's factually wrong and it's not based on evidence, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with psychoanalysis, you know, even though psychoanalysis is, is, is not really based on evidence. I mean, it's, some of it works, but, but the vast majority of Freud's theories don't bear out in the evidence. And so I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with Jung's theories, you know, even though they're, a lot of those are super, pseudoscientific. Wokeism is a problem for me because it has captured Hollywood, it's captured academia, it's captured publishing, broadcasting, and even the, the liberal media as well, the New York Times is, the, the Washington Posts. So it controls all of the elite sources of information in Western society. And that's where I think the danger lies. And it's captured my field, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. one of the things that really scares me about this piece of propaganda, this film, they slash them, is the what it feeds into the narratives about quote unquote conversion therapy. Um, so for anyone who hasn't heard my story, please go back and listen to episode 11 where I talk with Helen Joyce about what happened to me when I was targeted and accused of quote unquote conversion therapy. But right now we live in a time where politics um, is very fraught over how my profession is regulated. And, you know, I was a victim of that to an extent who survived. Um, then there are people who weren't so lucky, people like James Essis in the UK, who went to school a few years later than I did at a time that things were so bad that he got kicked out of grad school for questioning gender ideology. There are people who've lost their careers over this. And even though I made it out um, and defeated those allegations, I still feel like my hands are tied because I can't work with youth and families when the risk of being accused of conversion therapy is so high. Mm. So part of what I see about that that's so dangerous about the propaganda in this trailer is that it feeds into this narrative that is being spun right now that there are professionals, therapists, psychiatrists who are 
deeply bigoted, hateful, monstrous, and who are on this mission to convert these poor gender nonconforming youth, right? And in the film, they lump together gay with quote unquote non-binary, right? There's that member of the group who goes by the they slash them pronouns. Now we know, in fact, if you look into gender ideology, that a lot of it is anti-gay and tries to break down some of the barriers that people have worked hard to establish around their sex-based rights and their sexual orientation-based rights. But of course, the narrative doesn't work if you examine the differences between homosexuality, which doesn't pose a threat to anyone and which is fairly stable and cannot be changed, versus the idea that one can question the very malleable and novel concept of gender identity, right? So, of course, they lump together the kids in the trailer who are saying, I have no interest in not being gay anymore with the kid who's saying, I identify as a they, them. And they show these kind of evil, I don't know if they're doctors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, but trying to convert these kids and it turns into a horror movie. And this propaganda frightens me because right now there's a lot going on in legislation in various parts of the U.S., um, other parts of the world as well, where people are fighting over whether, well, for one, whether the term conversion therapy should include questioning someone's so-called gender identity. I argue that we should separate sexual orientation, which is innate and stable and harmless, from gender identity, which is novel, malleable, and comes with many associated harms. There's a lot going on right now in our culture and legislation around this issue of conversion therapy. So this propaganda really frightens me because it's just one more step closer to a world in which therapists cannot help these um, youth who believe they're in the wrong body and the only path is the path toward medicalization. When you talk about the capture of Hollywood and the kind of performative nature of wokeness, another thing that came to mind for me was uh, Jamila Jamil. Um, have you seen The Good Place? I haven't, no. But I know who Jamila okay, Jamil are is. You, okay. And do you know what her character is like on The Good Place? No, I don't know. Okay. Well, let me explain this. Um, so Jamila Jamil, in The Good Place, she plays Tahani. And Tahani is this wealthy, erudite, beautiful, cultured woman who comes from a family where she was never as good as her sister, her sister, the famous artist who her parents doted on. And so she spends her whole life trying to be better than her sister. And when she gets into the good place, she thinks, of course, I deserve this. I'm such a good person. I work so hard to be a good person until she realizes that the joke is on her and she's actually there because of her character flaws. And her biggest flaw is being this fake version of good that's not actually authentic and being driven by competition and jealousy. So in Jamila Jamil's, uh, or in the in Tahani's world, the character Tahani's world, what it meant to be good was, again, to be erudite and cultured and beautiful, classy, and to have all the latest clothing and the perfect body and all of that, right? And it's easy to kind of laugh and scoff at a character like that because it's so 
it's such a hyperbolic caricature of a person. And we all know that there are very few people in the world who are actually anything like that. But what I think is really interesting is that the actress, Jamila Jamil, I think she is a lot more like Tahani than uh, many of her fans recognize. You know, Tahani wasn't busy performing wokeness because that wasn't what made a person good in her character's world. But if you look at everything Jamila Jamil does, it's almost like the Tahani of this world where what it is to be a good person is to engage in these virtue signaling behaviors. And it kind of feels like the joke is on all of her fans and all of the fans of The Good Place who haven't yeah. spotted that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a kind of irony there. I think that's quite, quite funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know the, the sort of the degree to which wokeness is conscious, a conscious sort of decision that people make in order to increase their prestige and status, or whether it's a sort of subconscious attempt to do the same. Because I think these both both of these things could play a part. You know, I think some people might be doing it purely from a calculated and sort of uh, narcissistic sort of way, you know, where they're sort of, they're just trying to increase their own power. Um, whereas other people might be doing it because it makes them feel good to believe that they are compassionate and that they are high status, but they don't, they're not aware of it themselves. They're not actually aware that they're performing. Um, so it's, it's hard to sort of separate where the conscious attempt at wokeness ends and, and the sort of the subconscious uh, attempt sort of where they mingle together. I think that there's probably elements of both in, in people like Jamila Jamil. I think she's obviously, she's an actress. And so, She's been raised into this industry, which is all about performance. And I think with a lot of actors, they they are probably don't really even know who they are because they spend so long playing other people that they probably don't really settle on their own sort of sense of identity. And I think this is why a lot of actors tend to turn to drugs and and you know to try and you know alcohol alcoholism and, and sort of stuff like that. I think a lot of it's from the fact that probably they don't really know what they want because they place they spend so so long trying to be other people and so this is a, this is the problem is that it's i don't want to accuse people of being like individuals of being fake in terms of i don't want to accuse them of just uh performing a role because i don't know whether it's whether they're actually doing that i mean there's also people who might just genuinely believe what they you know what they believe um like i've i've never been woke but i was i was a socialist at one point and i did believe in a lot of the myths about racism, for instance, I used to believe that system, systemic racism was a serious issue that was one of the most important things in the in the West. I've, I've since changed my mind about that. I don't think that the uh, evidence for it is actually very strong at all. But I used to believe it because I used to read the New York Times and I got all my information from the liberal media. Just reading article and article about this person being discriminated against or about how uh, healthcare for black people is worse than healthcare for white people. You know, they have worse social outcomes, health outcomes, economic outcomes. I thought, oh, you know, this is really bad. Like people are discriminating against black people all the time. So I genuinely believed what the New York Times was was teaching me, what it was, you know, what it was feeding my brain. I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I wasn't. At least I didn't think I was. I didn't. I wasn't making this conscious effort to, um, you know, uh, to increase my status or my prestige. I actually genuinely believed in, you know, that systemic racism was actually apocalyptic, that it was, that, that things were really, really bad and that my chances as a brown person were going to be severely hindered. I thought, what's the point? You know, I thought at one point I was so, 
I was so, so much of a believer in this that I thought there's no point in me even trying because I'm just going to get discriminated against. Um, people are going to see my name on, on a CV, on a resume, and they're going to instantly reject my application. And real life and living taught me that this was completely wrong. You know, I've had great opportunities in my life, as, as good as any white person. And I realized that a lot of the stuff that I'd read in the New York Times was just completely wrong. And that, when I realized that, I completely changed my worldview. Also, my, I realized a bit more about economics and I realized that social, the socialism that I originally believed in wasn't really going to work from an economic perspective. So as I learned, I sort of changed my, my worldview. And I, I, you know, so now I, I don't really consider myself left or right, but I, I, I reject my old view of things, which was simplistic. But my point being that I didn't believe these things because I, I thought that they were going to increase my status. I genuinely believed that systemic racism was a serious problem. And also the same thing happened with, 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 uh, with, with sexism. I believed that I believed in the gender wage gap of being, I believe, I believed that it was a result of discrimination against women. Um, you know, so I was, these were things that were more epistemic, epistemic rather than, you know, uh, sort of status driven. So I think that there's, there are some people who believe these things simply because they've got the wrong information. And, I th- and for those people, there's hope. I think um, we can, I think by sort of explaining why the evidence for these things is, fo- is poor, we can, we can steer these people towards a more accurate view of reality. And so for those people who hold out hope, but there are some people, nevertheless, who are purely in it for the status. And Scott Alexander, I don't know if you know who he is. He's also a psychotherapist. Um, he, I think he's a psychiatrist. I don't know if there's a difference between between psychiatrists and psychotherapists. There probably is. I'm not really, I don't know much about this. But yeah, he's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists anyway. prescribe. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's a psychiatrist based in the Bay Area. Um, so he, and he's one of the greatest bloggers of all time. His, his blog is excellent. Uh, he's, his, one of his blogs, his older blog called Slate Star Codex is legendary in, in the Bay Area as one of the sort of greatest of the rationalist blogs. Um, but he had this great essay where he compared two types of people. He compared error theorists and conflict theorists. And when he says conflict theorists, he's not talking about Marx's view of conflict theory. This is a different conflict theorist. Uh, so these two people are different in this way. So error theorists believe that when somebody has a, a belief system, they only believe that because they don't have all the facts because they they don't have the information. So it's ignorance, basically. Whereas conflict theorists believe that there is no such thing as having all the facts, that everything is about power. And if somebody believes something, it, it doesn't, more information isn't going to change their mind. All you've got to do is just, you've just got to have more power than that person. That's the only way to win, win the, the argument. So it's, it, this is very interesting because it sort of, it does reflect my own experiences and that I see there are some people who can be won over by facts. You know, there are, there are, there are sort of error theorists out there. There are many error theorists out there who can be won over by just giving them the right information. But there's also a large group of people who no amount of information, no amount of truth is going to change their minds because for them, there is no objective truth. And this is particularly true in the field of postmodernism and critical theory, critical uh, critical race theory, and that because these people don't believe in objective truth, they believe, or at least most of them don't do. A small proportion of them do, but I'd say the majority of them probably don't. Um, for them, it's all about power. Information is purely about power because they're following Foucault's 
dictum about how everything is essentially uh, about power, and there is no uh, you know there is no right or wrong. It's simply who has the power. They determine what's right or wrong, and there's no objective right or wrong. So this is this is the main obstacle I think in the world today is that there's a conflict between those who are conflict error uh, theorists and conflict theorists. There are people like my former self, like I used to believe that everybody was an error theorist. I used to believe that everybody would be changed if you just gave them the right information, which is why I, I sort of worked on search engines trying to give people the right information. You know, um, I, I, I realized that that's actually just not true, that there's so many people out there who no amount of information is going to change their minds. And so really, these are the problematic people. These are the people we need to understand. We can't change with facts. So Really, what do we do with these people? You know, how do we, uh, how do we bring these people into the truth? Is it even possible to bring them into the truth? You know, and it's, this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very dangerous, it's a very hard problem to solve because it tends to lead towards one dangerous outcome, which is force. You know, that's what they believe. That's what a lot of these conflict theorists believe is that, is that the only way to change people's minds is through force. And that's why you got banned from Twitter because these people are conflict theorists. They believe that they have to use force to change the information landscape uh, by eliminating people like you who have views that they don't like instead of trying to reason with you. you know? And so this is, uh, this is the essence, I think, of the problem that we're facing now is that there is a lot of conflict theorists in this world. I find some value in this conceptual framework, but it also seems like it sets up a false dichotomy. And I don't think that those are the only two explanations, right? The idea that either people are uh, logical and receptive to new information uh, or that they can only be won over by power, I think there are many complex factors at play. Some of which we've we've talked about today, right? Mm -hmm. And you know the that it's it's not just this drive for power. I, I kind of question the motives of the people who see everything in terms of power because it makes me wonder if it's a projection of their own power hunger. I don't think mm -hmm. it takes into account all the different drives we have, including many of the kind of evolutionary ones that you talked about today. But I think mm -hmm. about I think, the yeah, emotions that we invest. The, the emotions yeah. that we invest in our beliefs and everything that's kind of rooted into them and that there is, you know, the, the sunken cost of realizing you were wrong, we, we try to avoid that sunken cost and we try to avoid the cognitive dissonance of recognizing that we might have been wrong. And I think especially one of the issues that's so dangerous around gender is that so many of the people who are doing the affirmation thing, parents, therapists, doctors, they think they're doing the right thing. They're, they are driven by compassion. And of course, it's going to be really hard for them to work against their emotional instincts to recognize that they've actually done harm in the name of good. So I think there are many forces at play here. Absolutely, there are. But I think the point of this conceptual framework is just to, it's, it's illustrative, is to, to sort of make things clear, right? So Scott Alexander doesn't pretend that it's a simple dichotomy, that it's just that there are error theorists and there are conflict theorists and that's it. What he's trying to say is that we, we are all, to a certain extent, both error theorists and conflict theorists, but that there are certain, in certain people, these uh, drives are dominant, certain drives are dominant. So some people are primarily conflict theorists and some people are primarily error theorists. And 
I think that this is true. I think that it really depends on how you view truth. I think if you view truth as something that people can actually arrive at through logical reasoning, uh, then you're going to be more likely to see things from the point of view of the error theorists, where if you have your views changed, uh, sorry, if, if you have your views confronted with, with conflicting information, then you'll change your, your views. Whereas if you tend to believe like many critical theorists believe that there is no objective truth and that, that everything is just governed by power, then no, no argument is going to change your mind because you're not going to view that argument as an attempt to get closer to the truth. You're going to use it, you're going to see it as an attempt to get closer, closer to power. And so this, I think, is what's dangerous about wokeness is that it tends to encourage this kind of thinking. It tends to encourage conflict theories instead of error theories, if you know what I mean. Uh, and, and those so, ideas also, they lack sorry, theory of mind because they, they leave out the possibility within error theory, as I'm understanding it, that people could potentially have the same information and still draw different conclusions based on different moral instincts, priorities, ways of interpreting the information. There's a lot of nuance that gets lost. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that. Well, you know, it's it's a conceptual framework. It's just a mental model. It's not an accurate reflection mm -hmm. of reality. It's something that helps us just understand a certain thing. You know, so um, mm -hmm. obviously the, the world is more complicated than just people being error theorists and 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 uh, conflict theorists. It's just that what it helps us to do is it helps us to understand that, like you said, there are different motivations at play. Right. So. Uh, you won't always be able to change somebody's mind by giving them the evidence. I think this is the central point it, because people don't always believe things because they think they're true. You know, um, there are many theories. I mean, you know, signaling is another very important factor here. So, uh, you know, like I, I once said that um, an absurd ideological belief is, is not really something that uh, is based on truth. It's usually uh, something that people believe specifically because it's absurd, because what it does is it communicates to their tribe that they favor uh, the ideology over truth or reason or sanity. And to, its, to their enemies, it acts as a threat display, showing that the same thing, that they favor their ideology over truth, reason, or sanity. Do you get what I'm saying? So people, uh, you know, signaling is, is a very, I think, powerful force in, in human, in human uh, society, because we don't just believe things because they're true. We also believe things because of how they make us appear to other people. Uh, you know, beliefs can be a kind of uniform in which they communicate loyalty. And so there are so many of these factors, but what this framework of conceptual, uh, this conceptual framework actually does is it just helps us to understand that sometimes you need a different approach. You can't just give people the evidence and just, and just, expect them to change their minds. Uh, this is you know, particularly true of this kind of gender ideology and this critical race theory because of the very fact they do, they do not believe in truth, many of them, you know, because they take their teachings from Foucault, who was sort of really the first to uh, say that you know, categories like genders, for instance, are uh, tools by which we are oppressed. You know, he, Foucault believed that uh, categorizations of male and female and all these other categorizations, brown and white, uh, these are just false 
categorizations that are like prisons that are imposed on us to oppress us and that we need to liberate ourselves from these uh, categories. And then obviously from Foucault, you had people like Judith Butler who drew upon all that kind of stuff. And she developed in, you know, the, the postmodernism into gender ideology. And uh, from there, that's from, from that sort of small enclave within philosophy, uh, it spread to where it is now, where you've got Hollywood movies being made about, uh, about it. But yeah, I mean, the, um, the central idea of, of postmodernism is that there is no truth. There is, at least, there is no truth that we can arrive at, that we can never get close to that truth. There may be truth, but we can't, we can't ever discover it. So if that is the case, how do you convince someone that what they believe is wrong? This is, this is the, the central problem, I think, with, with facing postmodernists, is that they don't even believe in truth, so how can you convince them they're wrong? You know? Um, well, it's an so, internal contradiction because for people who don't believe that there is a truth, they sure are certain about their ideas. Well, because the, they believe, you know, that could because, that same concept that we can't know truth could could manifest could at, a, at a higher them. octave yeah. of conscious. Well, it could yeah. it, it could be enlightening in the same ways yeah. that today you and I are exploring thinking like a scientist, assuming that you're wrong. I mean, it's like they're close to the truth with that, but then they take it in this whole different direction that's full of internal contradictions, just like so much of postmodernism. Yeah. I think although they don't believe in truth, they do obviously believe in compassion, uh, which is what drives their, their beliefs. You know, they believe that Ultimately, what they believe in is the beauty of their own utopia, their, their own dreams. You know, they believe that they can create a perfect world where everybody is accepting of everybody else. There's no prejudice. There's no discrimination. There's maximum diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and everybody's happy. You know, th that's generally the kind of worldview that they're, they're aiming towards. And they believe that the only obstacle towards that is people like you and I, who um, <laughs> are trying to find, what, find out what's true rather than, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's utopian. And so obviously they believe in things, you know, there's this common misconception that postmodernists don't believe in anything. And that, that's not true. They do believe in things they, they, they believe in, in their utopia. They believe, uh, in this kind of, that they can make the world better. And that's essentially what this, uh, new, uh, sort of brand of postmodernism seeks to do because Foucault's original ideology was very, uh, nihilistic you know he he believed essentially that that everything was just a construct of uh, of society and and so that was very nihilistic because it, it meant that even good and evil and the things that we desire are essentially just constructs and so when this new generation of, of postmodernists emerged sort of in the in the 19 late 1980s or probably a little bit before that they they tried to marry marxism with postmodernism in order to eliminate postmodernists nihilism and that's where we got this kind of cultural marxist fusion of, of postmodernism which became critical theory uh, critical race theory rather uh, which is different from critical theory so this was the attempt to sort of create this kind of synthesis uh, which would be which would only apply postmodernist thinking to areas where it could be used politically in order to bring about a certain utopia and that utopia was a world of equality and that's what is meant by cultural Marxism. But what's really depressing to me is that Wikipedia has been also taken over by the woke. Because if you were to search cultural Marxism on Wikipedia, you would find it, it, it called cultural Marxist, cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. And it will immediately tell you that cultural Marxism is, an, is a far right 
anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And it's, it's shocking to me that this has been allowed on Wikipedia for as long as it has, because if you actually look at the academic literature, you'll see that cultural Marxism has been used by academics, mainstream academics, for about 30 to 40 years. And it's, it refers to the transition from economic Marxism to identity Marxism. And this is all a result of Marcuse and Gramsci and people like that, who believed that the reason that the proletarians hadn't um, succeeded in, in revolutions in the West was because they'd been overtaken, they'd basically been brainwashed by the elites, by the bourgeoisie, uh, into adopting bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie thinking. And so it was, what was needed was not an economic revolution, but a cultural revolution, because the proletarian needed to be um, freed from the thinking of the bourgeoisie. And so that's what cultural Marxism actually refers to. But if you look on Wikipedia, it's described as a conspiracy theory, and not just a conspiracy theory, but a far-right uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And so this is really disheartening to me because the power of wokeness now is so great that it can even influence Wikipedia. It can even influence something that is supposed to belong to all of us. If I, if I were to try to edit that, immediately I'd get shut down because there's a certain click of Wikipedia editors. There's this common misconception that um, Wikipedia is open to editing for all, you know, that anybody can edit Wikipedia, but that's not true. And it's particularly not true when it comes to issues of gender and race because there are cliques of ideologues who control who can edit those pages. And they're all woke. They're all extremely woke. You just have to look at their talk pages to see what they say. They will, they will always eliminate any, any evidence against their position. Even from like mainstream credible organizations, they'll find a reason to reject it. You could get a Harvard study, you know, and you could show it to them and they would reject it if it doesn't fit with their views on gender. So it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous because this, because Wikipedia is the world's most popular source of information, and it is something that is supposed to belong to all of us. And yet, even that has now been taken over by, by these ideologues. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. When you talk about the utopianism of the postmodern worldview, it makes me wish that they had a bit more pragmatism to look at the proof being in the pudding, right? Like how are these ideas panning out? So there's a hypothesis, if we think about it more scientifically, which I don't think they are, but if we analyze it more dispassionately, there's a hypothesis here that these ideas uh, will lead to this happy society. And yet it's kind of always a dangling carrot. And if you if you stop at any point along the way towards this vision of utopia and ask where are these ideas leading us so far how much happier and healthier are we now i think you'll see at any point along the way that these ideas are uh making people paranoid they're making people despondent you know like earlier you talked about how your previous views on race had led you to believing that 
things were kind of hopeless for you because of the color of your skin, right? And so we're, we're breeding that kind of nihilism, that uh, external locus of control that I, I can't find happiness and health for me in the here and now because we're not in an ideal world. Infighting, uh, you can never be good enough if you're in one of these groups. If if you were to stop at any point along the way and ask, how is this working out for us so far? We would see maybe this actually isn't leading in the direction of health and happiness. But the progressive worldview always holds the vision that the change is in the future and that we haven't gotten there yet. And that it's just all, all of the unhappiness is just evidence that we have to fight harder. And one place where this logic is going that really scares me right now is that I think we live in a time of an increasing crisis of the mental health of victims of gender medicine. So that by them, I mean detransitioners, desisters, their families, and people who for whom transition leads to worse mental and physical health outcomes. And we're starting to see a rise in suicides of D-trans and trans people. My One of my concerns here is that as we see those suicides, there will be narratives given to the suicides that say this was because of transphobia. We're already seeing that that narrative is given to the poorer mental health outcomes uh, that we currently see for trans-identifying individuals wherever they are in the process. So rather than looking at how is this working out for people, could it be that these cross-sex hormones and surgeries and the ideas associated with gender ideology are actually making people unhappy and unhealthy? There's a narrative that's being clung to, uh, the narrative being that it's all the fault of people like you and me. Um, and so then it's just more evidence that they need to double down and work harder towards these progressive ideals without ever recognizing that this isn't actually going in the direction we thought it was going. Maybe we should reassess. Yeah, absolutely. I think you uh, you just pointed out, I think, one of the, the most dangerous things, which is that anything that happens, essentially, they will uh, use as evidence for their position. So if things get better, they'll say it's because of them, you know, it's because of their activism. If things get worse, it's because of their enemies, you know? And so this is the, this is what I mean when I say that, you know, these people are, a lot of these people are primarily conflict theorists in that they don't, they don't see things as they really are. They just see things in terms of how will this improve our standing? How will this give us more power? So they'll use it as an opportunity. You know, this, the paranoia is self-perpetuating in the sense that Yes. Okay. So if you believe that the world is against you and you believe, if you believe that because of the color of your skin or because of your gender or whatever, um, that you're, you're being discriminated against, that's going to increase your anxiety and your paranoia. But then that anxiety and paranoia is going to lead you further into this ideology uh, that you're already in. So it's a self-perpetuating feedback loop. There is very little that people can really do from the point of view of, of just giving these people the right information, because you could give people suicide statistics all day long. It's not going to change their mind because their brains are just going to interpret that information in a different way to you. They're going to say, oh, the reason why uh, detransitioners are uh, committing suicide at a greater rate is because there's greater stigma on, on trans people or whatever. You know, just, they'll just make up something. They'll say it's because of it's because of prejudice. It's because of transphobia that they're committing suicide. It's not, it's not because they regret their decisions. And so information alone is not going to change these people's minds, you know, because whatever you, whatever information you give them, it's just going to, they're going to, it's going to be distorted by their, by their prejudices and their beliefs, and it's just going to fit their narrative. And so this is why I believe that really 
um, it all comes, it all begins with understanding the biases because the biases are the things that distort your worldview and distort the information that enters your head. You know, like I, I say in one of my pieces that one of my great sort of realizations and one of the things that really convinced me to pursue uh, sort of understanding the brain rather than technology was that information enters the mind, not like a puzzle piece being slotted into a jigsaw. What happens is that it enters more like water being poured into a jug. The water takes on the form of the jug. So whatever form the jug is, the water is going to take that form. And it's the same with the brain. If you have certain worldviews, if you have certain prejudices and biases in your head, then any information you receive is going to take the form of your worldview. It's going to take on that form. And so this is why it all begins with changing the shape of your head, so to speak. You know, <laughs> um, the, the biases and the fallacies and the prejudices that cause you to see the world in a certain way. This is why we have to begin from that point. We can't just go straight into giving people evidence and saying, oh, you're wrong because this study proves you're wrong. People aren't going to listen to that. They're going to say, oh, it's a bullshit study, or they're going to say, oh, this study proves me right. It doesn't prove you right. You know, so it all begins with the with understanding the mind and understanding understanding. Because once you do that, then everything else follows. So that is what I'm going to try to do. That's, you know, that's my sort of uh, goal is to try to improve people's understanding of their own understanding. Love it. I'm pulled in two directions here. One is to wrap up. We've already been going for a while and we're nearing the end of the time we blocked off. The other is talking about Twitter bans and slogans, which in my experience oh, yeah. are related. Um, yeah. What would you prefer? I think, what do you mean by slogans? So uh, what I was banned for was I put in quotes, trans rights or human rights. And then I oh, said, right. okay. I just, let's I just examine this. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so, so I've also been in the same position as you, you know, I've had to sort of, you know, I've been put into Twitter jail and I've uh, been forced to sort of delete my own tweets in order to be reinstated. Um, and I think that what it comes down to is that there are two arguments here. There's an ethical argument and there's a pragmatic argument. The ethical argument is to do what Jordan Peterson did, I think, which is to stick to your guns, you know, because you shouldn't give people, you shouldn't, you should stick to your guns and you shouldn't like, you know, uh, renounce what you've said. You shouldn't renounce your own beliefs and renounce what you truly believe in your heart. Mm -hmm. So he's chosen to completely abandon Twitter now. He's gone on to join the Daily Wire, but that's because he can afford to do that because he's already the world's most popular intellectual. He's got a platform outside of Twitter. He's got himself, you know, he's on the Daily Wire now. He's making millions of dollars. He can afford to do that. People like you and I, we're different. We can't afford to leave Twitter, I don't think, because we want to be able to change people's minds, right? We want people to be like, we want to be able to share our beliefs. In order to do that, we need to stay on Twitter. So you've got to ask yourself, so either I can do something that is morally reprehensible to me now and completely lose my influence and not be able to change anybody's mind in the future, or I can just bite the bullet, do something that I find undesirable, but which is ultimately trivial, and be re re uh, restored to Twitter and be able to continue to talk to people and to continue to have influence. So I would choose the second option all the time for me because 
I need Twitter. I still need Twitter. And although I disagree with the political views of the people at Twitter, the people who control what is allowed to be said, Twitter has been hugely beneficial to me. And I can't ever pretend that's not the case. You know, I've, it's, it's actually been the difference for me between becoming an influencer and being somebody who's not known by anybody. Uh, because I wouldn't have had a platform. I mean, I was writing on Medium before. I did have, you know, a little bit of stint at ARIO and stuff, but all of the opportunities I've ever had in my writing career pretty much have come from Twitter. It's come from people, because when I, when I used to send out my, my work to publications before I joined Twitter, nobody was interested in publishing anything I wrote. Uh, it was only after I developed a following on Twitter that people started approaching me, asking me to write for them. So it's been a huge benefit to me. And I'll always remember that. So I'm willing, just as when I go to somebody's house, if they tell me to take off my shoes, I will do that. You know, I don't tend to like doing that, but I'll do it. I'll do it because I'm in their house. And so I do, I act the same in Twitter. When I'm in Twitter's house, I I behave according to their rules. Even though I don't like their rules, I'm in their house. So I follow their rules. And we could get into Mm -hmm. section 230 and all that, but I won't, I won't go there because that's a whole other conversation. That is a pragmatic approach. It's a cost-benefit analysis. And I'm glad Twitter's been helpful to you. It has been very helpful to me as well. And may I ask, what have you been banned for? And how has that process gone for you? Or suspended, I mean. So so I I I haven't been banned for a long time because I've been been quite well behaved. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I, uh, for the first time that I was banned was because I I accused somebody of being a jihadi (laughs) because they supported Hamas. Which is, I think, perfectly reasonable thing to do. They were they were a Hamas supporter, right? And they were attacking me because this was when I, when I was doing a lot of work in uh, in jihadism and stuff when I was in Luton. And uh, somebody written they read one of my articles and they started accusing me of um, you know hating Muslims and all this kind of stuff. And then I found out that they were a Hamas supporter, and so naturally, you know, I just I I called them a jihadi, and um, as a result of that, I got banned. I mean, I got suspended. I and wish I that worked to, uh, in reverse so that I could ban people for calling me a Nazi because yeah. that happens yeah, too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've been called a racist. I've been, I've, it's weird because um, I've been called a, a shit skin as well on, on Twitter and nothing happened. That I think that tweet might even still be up. I don't know, but this was a while back and you know, it's like Twitter seems to be very arbitrary in what it chooses to enforce and what it doesn't. So enforce. when someone you, says something uh, racist to you, they don't get in trouble. But when you are mm. accused of being racist, you get in trouble. And you're not yeah. even white. It, it seems funny. to be <laughs> it seems to be arbitrary. It's like um it really, you know, a lot of the moderation is done by automation because there's just simply far too much content uh, for humans to moderate. Uh it only goes to human moderators when there's an appeal or when there's, you know, somebody flags something up as being wrong. So most of the time it's just a machine doing it. And I think maybe the, the reason that the shitskin uh, tweet didn't get uh, suspended. The, the guy who wrote the tweet didn't get suspended. It's probably because I didn't report it. Um, I don't report. I don't report tweets, even if they if I find them grossly offensive, because I just that's just not how I roll. You know. I think yeah, it, it's just the problem is is that it's all algorithmic. It's all judged by things that aren't even human beings. You know, <laughs> and so we're being judged by machines, and this is the problem. Um, this leads to so much of this kind of stuff, but. Because I've worked in search engine, uh, in the field of search engines and stuff, I, I understand how flagging occurs and how how computers read words. So I'm quite good at avoiding uh, Twitter jail now. Um, it's interesting because I, 
I actually follow some people who are legit white supremacists on, on Twitter. And I've also followed people who are legit ISIS supporters as well, like proper hardcore terrorist sympathizers. Um, and I've noticed that these people are still on Twitter also. And it's because they're very clever. I wrote an article about this, actually, about how um, jihadis uh, have invented a new language that they use to communicate with each other on social media uh, in order to avoid the, the Twitter moderators. And the people on the extreme right, the, these white na- nationalists, they do the same thing. Uh, these near, they're neo-reactionaries, and they, um, they have this lingo for things that they, they would ordinarily ordinary be f- uh, flagged. Because obviously words like uh, the N-word and stuff are like flagged. So if, if anybody writes that down, it's going to be alert, uh, a machine will be alerted and uh, that, that tweet will be flagged immediately. And so there's you follow also other these ones. radical groups to learn from them. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't will you share your <laughs> tips on what have you learned about how to stay out of Twitter jail? So I, I tend to just, I think one of the things is you've got to avoid being reported by other people. And the way that you avoid being reported by people is to avoid inflammatory language, right? And so, you know, if you want to talk about trans rights, it's usually a better idea to be more general and to talk about people whose mind and body don't align, for instance. Um, you know, so so instead of like just immediately talking, because if, if you use the word trans, that's going to be flagged, you know, because trans is a hot topic. And there are certain words that are flagged. So the moment you type that in, the, the algorithms are going to know. They're going to, I they're going actually, to know. And, in that reported tweet, I have to say it was T R uh, asterisk. Even NS. yeah, even that yeah, yeah that, that that that's not going to help because they they know that people do that, so they're going to have that also as part of their database. So they also use abbreviations because they know that people aren't always going to use the full words. If you blank out a word, it doesn't matter; they're still going to know. But I think in your case, anyway, it was probably uh, a user probably flagged that anyway right. uh, on top and of I- that. But, try to avoid that by blocking a ton of people, but obviously I didn't block anyone. Yeah. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, yeah blocking is a, is a good good strategy. I think you're doing a good thing there. I think that that works. Um, you've got block lists that you can subscribe to, and they'll block everybody of a certain who's who follows a certain person. I mean, it's not a great way to do it, but it, it can help you. Mass can I get block. information on that from you later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all you have to do is just type in block list, Twitter block list, and it will just give you all the information you need. Um, Great. But I mean, yeah, it, it, that's that's what a lot of people on the on the left do against people on the right. I'm blocked by loads of people I've never even interacted with, purely because of the people I interact with, because I interact with certain people that that I deem to be uh, uh, pariahs. I I'm blocked as a result. Yeah, I mean, what the strategies that these jihadis and these white nationalists use is that they use diff, they use code words. Um, for instance, like uh, jihadists use uh, the word green birds to refer to suicide bombers. And they use uh, words like um, hijra to refer to going to ISIS, go to Syria to join ISIS. Hijra is the Arabic word for pilgrimage. And, um, you know, the white nationalists have got their own lingo as well. Theirs is pretty nasty. I mean, they refer to black people as BNs. I'm not going to tell you what that, that stands for. I'm sure you'll be able to work it out. But, uh, but they use the word BN to refer to a, a black person. And um, so they all have their own sort of their own language that they use online. And this means that there's people online who I've been following for like five years who who are hardcore extremists. You know, these guys are proper extremists. I don't report them because I I learn from them quite a bit. I learn quite a lot of their information, uh, what they really think and stuff. So I I tend to use them as as research fodder. But these people are still online and they haven't been caught, you know, and it's quite extraordinary because they've been able to fool the algorithms like that. 
But for you, I don't think you need to, you're not as extreme as these people, obviously. So you don't need to go to such extremes. I think really for you, just do what I do, which is just to, just to moderate your language in a way that is not going to upset. It's not going to be inflammatory. It's not going to create outrage. I think that there's always a way to say something in a way that is not outrageous. I think that, you know, pretty much any opinion can be expressed in a non-outrageous way. And I think one of the problems is that you can't include many caveats in tweets because of the word limits, but you can, you can use general and broad terms. So like I said before, so instead of talking about trans people specifically, you can talk about people whose mind and body don't align. Um, you know, if you, if you want to talk about uh, transitioning, you can talk about just surgery generally. You know? So there's, there's, there's more general terms that you can use so that you've got plausible deniability, as it were, in a sense, that can help you. I think you should definitely get back onto Twitter because Twitter is going to help you, I think, reach an audience which is going to be more in your long-term interests. You know, Deleting your tweet is probably going to make, make you feel horrible for a whole minute or so. <laughs> but after that, you've got Twitter to you know, just basically vent to. So I think it's definitely worth it. If you want to, you know, if you want to change people's minds, you've got to be on Twitter. And so I would definitely suggest that you you delete the tweet. One concern I've had about deleting the tweet is I was wondering, is there like a certain number of strikes where if you say, yes, I admit this was hate speech, right? Does that count as, okay, strike one on hate speech. And when you get to strike three, you're out. Does it work like that? Well, you get the strike regardless of whether you delete the tweet or not. The moment you, you're you suspended, that's when the strike occurs. It doesn't occur when you delete the tweet. Mm-hmm. So you've already got the strike now. And okay. um, it's just basically what it is, is it also depends on the severity of the transgression. Uh, so I don't work at Twitter, so I can't tell you for definite exactly how it works, but I can only tell you from my experience in tech uh, generally how how it tends to work. So it's, it's generally, there are levels of transgression. So if you commit something that's really bad, like say if you were to um, call for violence against somebody online and to dox their address, you would get immediately banned. You wouldn't get any strikes. You just get immediate termination. But for for expressing an opinion that is considered to be bigoted, that's slightly less of an issue. So you get a strike for that usually. Usually it's one strike. Sometimes you can get more strikes for, for one tweet, but it's generally how it works is you either get a suspension or you get a termination. And so I think it would I think what you should do is if I were you in your position, I would seek to build an audience off Twitter, but I would continue to use Twitter. And I think a lot of people who are on uh, who are sort of outside the mainstream of acceptable discourse, that's how they they tend to do things. James Lindsay, you, you mentioned him. He's got his own thing now. He's got new discourses. Uh, obviously, you've got all these other people who have started Substacks now, like me, for instance. I'm working on building an audience off Twitter. I'm building an audience on Substack now. Substack's great because they allow me to say whatever I like. You know, that's why I love Substack. Um, so, but I, I'm still on Twitter. I still use Twitter because of network effects. So, network effects is why I, I would never leave Twitter and why most people would never leave Twitter. The, the idea behind network effects is that uh, it basically follows something called Metcalfe's Law, if I'll just explain this very quickly. So Metcalfe's Law is this idea in computer science. It's not a, math, math, it's not a mathematical law. It's just a, a very broad rule of thumb. And it's the idea that the value of a network is proportional to the square of the nodes of the network. So the square of the number of nodes in the network. And what this means is that 
the network's value uh, grows exponentially as you add nodes to it. What this means for Twitter is that there are so many people on Twitter that it's that that trying to boycott it, that leaving it is not going to work. It's not going to do anything. It's it's going to hurt you more than this more than it's going to hurt Twitter because they've got so many twi- they've got so many users that everybody else now wants to use Twitter because everybody else is on Twitter. So we're all in a way if we want influence, we're all stuck on Twitter because everybody else is stuck on Twitter because it's like a sort of game theoretic system where nobody wants to leave Twitter because everybody else is on Twitter. So we have to stay on Twitter. Everybody has to stay on Twitter. <laughs> Do you get what I'm, what I'm trying to say? It's a bit of a weird mm-hmm. concept, but it, no, it's the idea. It's the re- yeah. It's the reason why we can't hope for um, a boycott of Twitter. We can't hope for any of any collective action against Twitter. There's not going to be anything like that. Nothing's going to work. People have tried it in the past. They, they there was a massive uh, boy, a mass boycott of Twitter um, recently uh, after it tried to. Uh, I can't remember what it was over, but it was something to do with trans. Uh, the trans debate, there was a huge migration of people from Twitter, but it was only temporary because these people had to return to Twitter because everybody else is on Twitter. So it's in the lot in the short term, Twitter's gonna be, it's gonna be here to stay. And if you want influence, you're gonna have to use it. In the long term, there are some good things. There are actually some real positive things happening. There's Web3, which is around the corner. And Web3, I don't know if you've heard of it. Web3 is going to change the internet. It's going to, it's not going to be a massive revolution like everybody's saying. It's going to be a slow, gradual thing, but it's going to be a very, very real change. It's going to be the change from centralized uh, social media to decentralized social media. It's obviously going to be a lot more than that, but, but just for the for this purposes of what we're talking about with respect to social media, it's going to decentralize social media. So it's going to result in something called decentralized apps, which is that there is no central authority controlling what you can say or what you can't say. Instead, it's going to be a consensus system. Uh, this is going to be done, uh, hopefully, on the Ethereum blockchain. So what it will mean, this is going to be the next step of the uh, internet. So there was a transition between Web 1 and Web 2. Web 1 was sort of the old internet that was uh, you know, very, very sort of uh, basic sort of stuff like MySpace and stuff like that. Web 2 was stuff like social media. Now you've got Web3, which is going to be decentralized apps. So uh, there's there's not going to be any central authority to tell you what you can and can't say. You won't be able to be shut out of the system unless it's by mutual consent of every person in that network, which is just which means that every single person would have to agree that you're not allowed on that network. And so it's going to be impossible. That would be the equivalent of every single Twitter user um, saying that you have to be banned. And that's not going to happen because there's always going to be some people who would reject that. So you'll effectively be immortal on social media. You know, you won't have your um, your account under any danger of uh, of being banned. But this is something that's going to happen probably within a decade. It's going to take time for it to happen because of the network effects that they're going to take time to overcome. Twitter's, I don't know what Twitter's going to do. I don't know how it's going to try to uh, compete with, with this decentralized system. But in the end, there's what it's going to happen is there's not going to be any medium between me and you in terms of, I'm not going to have to go through Twitter to communicate with you. I'm not going to have to go through email to communicate with you. I can communicate directly with you through the blockchain. So there's not going to be anything, any, any middleman or any sort of intermediary between us. So nothing can block communications between us in that sense. And this is going to be a revolution. This is going to be something that's going to change the internet completely. And so there are, that, that's what I'm, you know, is, is what I'm trying to say is that there are good times ahead for us because I think censorship is not going to be something that was going to concern us for very long. I think 
I think censorship is going to be almost impossible in a world of decentralized apps. And so this is only a temporary measure that you need to take uh, to delete tweets and to obey Twitter. It's only for now just to gain influence. And then once you've got your own following, by the time you've got a big following of your own, you won't need Twitter. You won't need um, any intermediary between you and your followers, between you and your audience. You will have a direct connection to your audience through the blockchain. So uh, you'll be able to say whatever you like. And yeah, wow. nobody can, it's nobody can harm you. It's hard to wrap my mind around that. Yeah, there, there won't be any, you won't need Patreon for payments. You won't need PayPal. You know, you won't need uh, any kind of content moderators of any kind because you can. It's all going to be just you directly interfacing with your audience, and that's going to be the future, and that that's going to be within our lifetimes easily. So, so that's something to look forward to, and um, so this whole Twitter jail is only a temporary measure. And will that only, even replace? Will that replace YouTube, Substack? Well, yeah, I mean, the mediums are still going to be there. The, the video medium is still going to be there and stuff like that. I think I, I can't predict exactly how this migration is going to occur, but I think it's, it's inevitable that it's going to occur because people tend to follow what's convenient. And what's co- going to be convenient is to just have direct relations with other people rather than going through intermediates, uh, you know, to be able to post your phones. I think some people will continue to use I don't. I don't really know how YouTube and Substack are going to adapt to Web three. I don't. I have no idea what their plans are. I know that Facebook is trying this whole Meta thing, where they're going to try and integrate the internet with everything, with with the Internet of Things, and try and create this kind of virtual reality space where everybody can, you know, live together and, and be happy. But I don't know how the others are going to try and uh, circumvent uh, the the obstacles that are going to be caused to them by by Web three. I know all I know is that it's going to be convenient for you and it's going to be convenient for me. It's going to be convenient for anybody who wants independence from centralized authorities that try to tell us what we can and can't do. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how governments will deal with it either. So this is all speculative. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe the governments will pass laws that will prevent this kind of thing from happening uh, in the future. I don't know. But as things stand, it's all legal and it's all well on the way, technologically speaking. The technology is there. The Ethereum blockchain is there to be built on now. The first steps are already being taken towards Web3 now. Facebook is already on the case trying to create this meta thing. So I think personally that it's going to be impossible for regulation, for for centralized uh, moderators to function in the future. They just simply won't have the power because there are just going to be so many ways for people to directly communicate with other people without the need of any intermediaries. And there's going to be the same with payments as well. I could pay you without having to go through PayPal, without having to go through Patreon or any other intermediary. I could just pay you directly, just from me to you through the blockchain. So, you know, if money and information can travel without the need of an intermediary, then what can they do? They can't, they can't stop you they, because those are the only two forms of leverage that they currently have. They can, they can take away your freedom uh, to transmit information and they can take away your freedom to pay other people. Those are the only leverage that, leverages they have. So both of those things are going to be rendered uh, sort of moot by, by the blockchain. And so I think that the future is looking bright for, uh, for those of us who value independence. Wow. It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So let me ask you something about Twitter bans again. Um, if it counts as a strike against you either way, 
What is the advantage of appealing versus just deleting the tweet? Is the only advantage that the tweet doesn't get deleted? If if you appeal and they I, agree? I, I would imagine so, yeah. I would imagine so. I mm-hmm. I don't I think maybe they would probably take away your strike as well. Okay. That uh, that was kind of what I was so, wondering. Yeah, yeah. So so like I said, I'm not I don't know for sure. I'm only guessing based on what I know of, of how social media mm-hmm. companies work, but I'm not an expert and, on this. So uh, I, I think that that's what would happen. Yeah. How many times have you been through this and kept your account? Um, so it's been twice, I think. Yeah, twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So once of the once was for uh, jihadism. Jihad. And I can't remember. Yes, yeah, so I accused somebody of being a jihadi. <laughs> Such a mm-hmm. weird, weird thing to get a, uh, a suspension over. What was the other thing? I can't remember what the other thing was over. Um, I think this, the other one was in a very, was very early days. Uh, that was sort of 2015 or something. And um, I must have insulted somebody, said something offensive. I don't remember what it was. The only one that I remember was the jihadi one. And that, because did that you, was more recent. That, did you appeal or just delete? I don't think that appeals were even possible at that, at that point. Um, mm. Because I don't remember having the option to do it. I just, it just said, you have to delete this basically, if you mm. want to continue using your account. So I, I just deleted it. For me, it wasn't a big issue anyway. I, to be honest, I wouldn't have written that that tweet um, because it was a heat of the moment thing. Because I was upset that he was attacking me uh, without having properly read my article. You know, which really winds yeah. me up when people don't even properly read your article and then start attacking you for things you haven't said. Oh and, yeah, um, I get that. Yeah, I had yeah, a comment yeah. on my and, YouTube on my interview with Helen Joyce that that said, um, "There's nothing wrong with being gay. There's just something wrong with you." <laughs> it's like, well, clearly yeah. you didn't listen. To th- I didn't say there was anything wrong with being gay. I get a lot of things like yeah, that, but tremendous. I do m- moderate yeah. my own YouTube comments. So I, I didn't let that through, but I understand how that could rile you up. And I appreciate you sharing yeah. your perspective on that. Um, so, you know, I will definitely think about just maybe just deleting the tweet and writing an article for my listeners and my followers yeah. um, on you know, that actual thread and expounding on those concepts more of unpacking when people say the slogan, trans rights are human rights, what are they actually talking about? Usually there's certain demands that are actually quite different from most things we consider human rights. And I do want to expand on that. And maybe once I've written that article, um, I'll feel okay about deleting the tweet. And so on this note, I'm just going to remind my listeners one more time to please follow me at both at some therapist and at some underscore therapist on Twitter, just in case. Follow me at some therapist on Instagram and subscribe to my newsletter at sometherapist.com. Make sure you're following this podcast on all the platforms and YouTube. And that brings us to Gerwinder. Where can people follow you and find your work? Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, at, which is at G underscore S underscore Bogle. So it's B-H-O-G-A-L. And you can also um, check out my Substack, which is uh, gwinder.substack.com. So it's G-U-R-W-I-N-D-E-R.substack.com. Do you have any books coming out in the near future? Perhaps, perhaps. Um, it's very early stages. I'm, I'm in talks, but I don't want to say too much because it might not happen because uh, I've been in the situation before where I thought I had a book deal, but it didn't go through. So Perhaps if I do have one, it's going to be very far away anyway. It's going to be like years away. So, um, so I understand I think that. It's best to just assume. It. No, yeah. 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 And for other stuff you've done, I know you have a couple of interviews 
on uh, Modern yeah, Wisdom I mean, with Chris Williamson that people can look up on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, I've got another one of those coming up, actually. I'm going to be uh, talking to Chris again uh, next month in August. Oh, so uh, look forward to that. Yeah, Chris is great. So uh, look forward to, to talking to him. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's probably stuff. I, I never search my own name through Google, but I'm sure that if you type my name into Google, you'll probably find some of the stuff about me. I don't know. Oh, I recommend setting up Google alerts for your own name. It's very interesting. Oh, no, I mean, there no, are a lot no. of people named <laughs> Stephanie Wynn who I receive news articles about, but I, I've also seen crazy things that have been written about me on the internet. Yeah, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't, I'm just not interested because I know that there's a lot of people who write just horrible stuff about me. So I don't want to, mm. I don't want to read any of that stuff. It's hard so, to find uh, fault with you, but thing. people are reactive yeah, on the internet. People always do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually what people, it's, it's usually due to the people that I hang out with or people that I interact with online. That that's the main reason I get hated uh, right, because I've written proxy. for Quillette and yeah. And, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, because I'm, I'm sort of on friendly terms with people who write for Quillette and stuff like that. And so people assume that because I'm on friendly terms with them, that I must be, you know, a racist. These are people who have never read Quillette in their lives, um, but I get heat for it. You know, so it's uh, just one of those weird things, isn't it? But I, I don't listen to the haters because if I did that, I would be, I'd be driven mad instantly. You know, um, there's always going to be haters, no matter what you do. I've noticed that no matter what I tweet about now, now that I've got quite a few followers online, no matter what I tweet about, there's always going to be somebody who will interpret my tweet in a way that upsets them. No matter right. what I tweet, even if I tweet the most positive thing in the world, you know, somebody, if I say, oh, you know, the world is beautiful. Somebody will say, oh, really? Well, there are people starving in Ethiopia, you know, they'll start going on a rant. So you can't, you can't right. ever listen to audiences because there's always going to be some people who are unhappy with you. So you just got to do cute. what you got to do. What, do you have a problem with elderly disabled kids? dogs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, yeah. you can't win with that. So I recall you saying in the portion of the interview with Chris Williamson that I, I listened to, you talked about the negativity bias and we didn't go through mm. the list today of cognitive distortions and logical fallacies, but that's certainly one that it's important to remember that the negative stands out more than the positive and we only have so much time and energy. So it's important to just stay focused on what it is that we're here to do and have some strategies for understanding what kind of criticism you want to take as constructive criticism versus to block out. So on that note, I'll ask you for one piece of advice finally for our listeners. What would you recommend as a habit or some food for thought for strengthening your mind and discernment? So following on from what you just said, I would say that ignorance was once uh, a bad thing. But uh, in an age where everything is competing for your attention, ignorance is actually a skill that can help focus you. So learn that your attention is simply limited and you need to be able to ignore a lot of the junk out there in order to focus your mind on what actually matters. So learn to ignore stuff that's not important in this world where everything is trying to compete for your attention. Wow, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks. Okay, Gorinder, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. 
At sometherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.